you have a Bible with you, let me encourage you to open up to 1 Corinthians. We're going to do a different sermon this morning. I'm going to be here today. Uh, Next week, we actually have a guest preacher. We're excited from hearing from Scott Christensen, who uh, did an equipping hour class uh, earlier this spring and uh, did a phenomenal job on the problem of evil. He's in town for a wedding, so I asked him to fill the pulpit for me this next Sunday. And then the Sunday after that, I'm going to be away at Camp Regeneration, keeping Josh Dozier awake while he's uh, attending to those 21 students. We're going to have a good time. i got three kids going, so I'll be at camp. So I kind of had a standalone Sunday is what I'm saying. We're right between Acts chapter 14, where we finished a couple of weeks ago, um, Paul's first missionary journey. Uh, in August, we'll be diving into Acts chapter 15, uh, which will be about the Jerusalem Council and working through issues of legalism. What does it really mean to be a Christian? And uh, so we're excited to jump back into that in a, in a few weeks in August. But this morning, I wanted to bring to your attention a message that, uh, that I preached at our Care of Souls conference that we hosted right here last month. We had a great turnout. We had some great uh, speakers that were preaching to us on areas of biblical counseling, the sufficient of scripture and uh, just the, uh, the, the beauty of God's word triumphs over and trumps all other philosophies. And so this morning, I'm going to preach a message, a sermon that I gave at that conference, and it's called, Does God Need a Psychiatrist? Does God Need a Psychiatrist? And I'll just start off with 1 Corinthians chapter 3, verses 18 through 21, and we'll be looking at various passages of scripture, but we'll read 1 Corinthians 3, 18 to 21 to kind of set our minds in the right direction. I'll pray, and then we'll jump into this message together this morning. Does God need a psychiatrist? Look at 1 Corinthians chapter 3, starting in verse 18. Paul writes to the church of Corinth. He says, let no one deceive himself. If anyone among you thinks that he is wise in this age, let him become a fool that he might become wise. For the wisdom of this world is folly with God. For it is written, he catches the wise in their craftiness. And again, the Lord knows the thoughts of the wise, that they are futile. So let no one boast in men, for all things are yours. It says again, whether by Paul or Apollos or Cephas, or the world of life or death, or the present or the future, all are yours, and you are Christ's, and Christ is God's. Let's pray together. Father, thank you for the opportunity to worship this morning through song, and through the reading of the word, and through preparing our hearts for a message like this from selected passages of scripture that would remind us that God's wisdom, that your special revelation in the scripture is all that we need for life and godliness, that we don't need man's philosophy, we don't need human um, constructs to somehow help us understand what's going on in the inner man, in our heart, in our soul. And so I pray this morning, God, that, that you would allow us to be humble, that you would allow us to listen carefully, that you would help us to have discernment, and that we would consider what's being said from this pulpit this morning in a way that would bring about encouragement and change and hope all found in the gospel and all found in the progressive sanctification of the life of any believer. So be glorified this morning in our time together and it's in Jesus' name we pray, amen. Her name was Candace. She had light brown hair and a splash of freckles across her face. She was born into a poor family in the backwoods of North Carolina. Her parents were poor plagued with various troubles and struggling with drug addiction. The police had visited her home several times in the first five years of Candace's problem-filled life. And when she was just five years old, she was plucked away by a social services worker from her family and was given to a well-to-do nurse who was looking for a child to love. And she was looking for someone that she could help, and so she ended up serving as Candace as her foster parent. And so her adopted mom found Candace's behavioral problems too much to handle. Candace was not used to having any kind of daily schedule and had never been to a daycare before. In addition to all of these challenges in her new life, she missed her parents and didn't know what had become of them. So the new foster mom tried everything that she could to help. She tried doctors, Counselors, 
medications, but nothing seemed to be working. So she sought help from a group of therapists in Colorado, and she paid $7,000 for a controversial type of therapy called rebirthing. Rebirthing is a therapy used to treat children who've been diagnosed with attachment disorder where the adopted child resists a loving relationship with their newfound parents. The children are taken to a special room for therapy where they're covered with blankets and pillows meant to stimulate the womb and are encouraged to push their way out or to emerge in an effort to be reborn. Candace was wrapped in a blanket and surrounded by pillows to stimulate that womb and that, and that experience. And so she had four committed therapists that pushed against her for about 70 minutes saying, emerge and bond with your new mom. Emerge, why are you being such a wimp? Candace screamed and begged them to stop and they kept saying, push, push. And Candace said, I'm going to die. And they said, go ahead and die then. And she did. Candace died in this therapy. She died from suffocation. And after undergoing this rebirthing therapy, when the therapist finally removed all of the pillows, she was found lifeless underneath. Two of the four therapists were charged with reckless child abuse resulting in death. Both received a 16-year prison sentence. Rebirthing therapy has now been banned in many states. It has been described as being potentially abusive and pseudo-scientific. Senator Mark Hillman at the time said this, quote, no one can read about this and not be horrified. The sheriff from North Carolina who knew her and her family said she didn't have a chance from the moment she was born until the moment she died at 10 years old. What a tragic story. But this can happen in an over-psychologized world where people have exchanged God's wisdom on how to deal with challenging issues for a lie. The lie is simply the belief that secular psychology is somehow able and equipped with what is needed for true life change. I'm here to tell you this morning that it is not Secular psychology is nothing more than man's wisdom. And for the purpose of this sermon, I'll use psychology and psychiatry somewhat interchangeably. To be clear, there's a slight difference between the two. Psychology is the study of the mind, the emotions and behavior from a secular and humanistic worldview. Psychology largely has been considered to be a branch of philosophy before it became its own independent discipline in the mid-1800s. Psychologists examine the cognitive and social factors that influence people's actions and reactions to all of life. Psychologists employ a variety of therapeutic techniques to help clients attempt to recover from trauma, undesired feelings, and improve their quote-unquote mental health. Psychiatry, on the other hand, is a branch of medicine focused on diagnosing and treating so-called mental health disorders. According to one publication, the term literally means medical treatment of the soul. Like psychologists, psychiatrists use psychotherapy to help their clients. However, since they are medical doctors, they also seek to understand how biology factors into a person's mental health and how to treat mental illness by prescribing medication. To be, to truth be known, both psychologists and psychiatrists are operating out of a secular worldview. They generally believe that life came from the Big Bang, that you have evolved from a monkey and that all of your problems can be blamed on genetics, brain chemistry, or on your own environment. And all of their thoughts and wisdom on mental health and human behavior come from secular pseudoscience and philosophy. And when it comes to receiving counsel, you have a, a choice to make as a Christian this morning, whether or not you want to seek the counsel from the world that offers human wisdom that is secular by nature, that doesn't believe in the existence of God or the gospel, or you can come to God. 
You can come to his word. You can come to men and women who will take the word of God, open it up, read it to you, explain it to you, and help you see how your thoughts and behavior can be changed and conformed in your inner man to the ways of Christ. And that's why we started off reading 1 Corinthians 3, 18 through 21. Let no one deceive himself. If anyone among you thinks that he is wise in this age, let him become a fool that he might become wise. Basically, the Bible's saying, if you're all smart in your secular understanding of the inner man, then you need to become a fool from the world's perspective in order to really be wise from God's perspective. Because the wisdom of the world is really folly with God. For it is written, he catches the wise in their craftiness. And again, the Lord knows the thoughts of the wise that they are futile. Science's best effort through secular psychology and psychiatry to somehow address what's going on in the inner man is futile. You're not able to diagnose the sin problem unless you're a theist. You have to believe in God and you have to believe that you have an inner man. You're not just material, but you're immaterial. And it's that inner man that needs to be brought to life. It's that inner man that needs to be repenting of ongoing sin. It's that inner man that God created as, as a soul spirit inside of you and has a desire to have a relationship with you in that sense. And the Bible tells us that the only way that we can have a relationship with God in that sense is through his son, Jesus Christ. You remember certainly Isaiah chapter 9, verse 6, for unto us a child is born, to us a son is given, and the government shall be upon his shoulder. And guess what? God's son, Jesus, according to Isaiah 9, 6, is called a wonderful counselor. He is a mighty God. He is the everlasting father. He is the prince of peace. So why would you go to any other counselor other than the wonderful counselor who can both save you from your sin and can bring about true change and hope in your life? Because the answer to the problem of the human heart do not lie within the secular wisdom of the world, but within the knowledge of God. Only God can change a life from the inside out and heal the brokenhearted. Only God can give hope where there is no hope. And only God has the right to counsel us, and he does so repeatedly through his word and through the person and the work of Jesus Christ. Jesus said in Luke 4, 18, the spirit of the Lord is upon me because he has anointed me to proclaim the good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim liberty to the captives and recovering of sight to the blind and set at liberty those who are oppressed to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. Jesus is saying in this passage nothing less than the fact that he is divine, that he is bringing good news, that he's opening up God's word and says, I have what you need. Jesus gives us his divine wisdom. Jesus is the wonderful counselor. Jesus has been anointed to proclaim the good news. Jesus proclaims liberty to the captives and recovery of sight to the blind. Jesus liberates those who are oppressed. Jesus brings the favor of God upon every broken sinner who cries out to him. And so my question to you this morning is what else could you be looking for? What more could you want? What better counsel could you find? Why would you ever be content with going to water that is being, porn and, uh, being poured out into a broken cistern that's leaking and draining itself dry when you could be filled up with the overflowing and eternal water of the living word of Christ? It's Christ. He is sufficient. He has all that you need this morning. And so today, we're looking at this topic again, does God need a psychiatrist? And in order to answer that question, you see in your outline before you, I'm going to give you three truths about psychology that answer the question. Number one, psychology is diametrically opposed to the Bible. Number two, psychology cannot be integrated with Christianity. And then number three, psychology falls short of pointing people to Jesus. So let's look at these three headings, if we can, this morning in order to answer our question in the title of the sermon today. Number one, psychology is diametrically opposed to the Bible. Now, we've been talking about this a little bit already, but secular psychology is the world system of describing human thought and human behavior and human development. That's what you'll get in a psychology class. They just want to talk about the human, which is fine, 
what they do, why they do it, their behavior and development. Some of that's scientific as we just studied the growth of a human being. And some of that is a theory when they began to try to get into what you think and why you think what you think. So the world's way is going to be psychology, but God's way is Christianity. Psychology and Christianity have been enemies from the very beginning. Their foundational beliefs are diametrically opposed to one another. Strangely enough, however, much of the evangelical community or the church today has tried to get these two sworn enemies to marry each other, and they call that marriage Christian psychology. Basically, Christian psychology is secular psychology disguised in spiritual terminology. It is a blend of psychological theories and therapies sprinkled with Bible verses. And there are countless books and clinics and live radio programs that have capitulated Christian psychology into a billion-dollar business. And so in the world of counseling, so far as the church is concerned, you got to make a choice. Obviously, as the church, you're not going to totally depend on secular counseling. And so secular psychology has integrated itself with Christianity. And by and large, most people who receive quote-unquote Christian counseling in the church today, by and large, are receiving this type of integrated counsel. And what I'm trying to purport to you this morning is we don't need to integrate man's wisdom with God's wisdom. We don't need or benefit from what the world has to offer because the Bible is sufficient for everything that we need for life and godliness. We depend on the Bible alone. And it's sad, but not surprising, that so many in the church today depend on secular thinking to fill a void that they believe exists that the Bible can't answer. Somehow they have answers that the Bible doesn't answer, and they want to help you fill that void. And I'm going to make a bold claim here today. I've already said it a couple times, but the, the claim is this. Godly counsel or biblical counsel does not need man's wisdom or man's insight at all, as far as it depends on your behavior and what you're thinking. What you're thinking, how you're acting, you don't need man's insight at all. And again, I'm getting that principle from Jeremiah that I quoted earlier, chapter 2, where he talks about that my people have committed two great evils. They have forsaken me, Jeremiah 2.13, and, and they've forsaken me, for the, the fountain of living waters, and they've hewed out cisterns for themselves, broken cisterns that can hold no water. So we live in a desert community, somewhat, right? That becomes more apparent this time of year. Why in the world would you take your precious water and pour it into the ground where the ground can't even hold it and it will just evaporate or be soaked in in a second? Rather, you want to use your hydro flask. Come on, you want to use some container, your water bottle, that's going to hold that water and be refreshing. And we're looking at the difference between what man has to offer is a broken cistern and what God has to offer in replenishing and overflowing the eternal water of truth from God's word. And so the problem is the world is seeking answers outside of the Bible. They don't want to turn to God. They don't want to turn to the gospel. They don't want to turn to it because it means renouncing all that you are. It means repenting of all of your sin. It means changing your ways. And the world will do anything they can to keep from doing that. And so many in the church have adopted many of these psychological and psychiatry-type thinking and brought it into the church. And Paul warns Timothy about being careful not to listen to false teachers. 2 Timothy chapter 3, verses 5 through 7 says that these false teachers have the appearance of godliness but they are denying its power. And Paul says to Timothy, you got to avoid such people. So if somebody's coming into the church and they're toting with them secular philosophy, secular thinking that is anti-God and anti-regeneration by faith alone and telling you that somehow you need to believe what they have to say in order to somehow have real change in your life, then you need to avoid such people. For among them are those who creep into households and capture weak women, burdened with sins and led astray by various passions, always learning and never able to arrive at a knowledge of the truth. The passage is saying they keep studying, they keep putting out new research, they're trying to solve problems. Why are we this way? Why are we thinking this way? Why do we struggle with these things? But they'll never come to the truth. 
unless they come to God's word. You have to come to God's word to come to the truth. And so I believe that Paul's description of the false teacher there in 2 Timothy applies to many so-called Christian psychologists. I mean, there are Christian psychologists that tell their clients to do all kinds of things. And preparing this lecture or this sermon, I read through uh, one of MacArthur's books on, um, on um, biblical counseling and on psychiatry. In fact, he has a chapter in his book. I'm, I'm, I'm like blanking on the name of the book for some reason. What's the name of the book? Justin? What is it? Sufficiency, Our Sufficiency in Christ. Thank you, I can't believe I forgot the title of that. It's one of his best uh, written books, Our Sufficiency of Christ. And it was like chapter four, I think, in the book that had this title about uh, does God need a psychiatrist? And so some of the information here is coming out of that chapter, but he talks about how all all kinds of things. Uh, Dr. Scott has told many stories that some of you have heard about psychologists that he's talked to that would tell uh, clients that if you feel guilty going to church, then just stop going. You don't want to go to a place that's going to make you feel guilty. Uh, MacArthur talks about in the book I just mentioned, Our Sufficiency in Christ, that one Christian psychologist told a listener on a live program, this is years ago, to express anger at his therapist by making an obscene gesture at him. Go ahead, he told the caller. It's an honest expression of your feelings. Don't try to keep your anger inside. Well, what about my friends, the caller asked. Should I try to react to all of them when, in the same way when I'm angry? Why, sure, this counselor said. You can do it to anyone whenever you feel like it, except those that you don't think will understand, and they won't be good therapists for you. I mean, it's just kind of ludicrous sometimes when you start to hear stories of what, what some, I'm not saying all Christian psychologists are like that, right? But I'm just saying some have mixed oil and water together, which you can't, and that's the epitome of a false teacher, by the way. They sound good, and they say they love Christ, and yet they start mixing with philosophies from the world, which go clearly against what God's word says. And that example that I just gave goes clearly against Ephesians 4, 26 and 27. Be angry and do not sin. Do not let the sun go down on your anger and give no opportunity to the devil. So God's word also warns that false teaching will only increase in the future as we wait for the return of Christ. Paul told Timothy to faithfully preach the word in 2 Timothy 4, 3 through 4, he said, for the time is coming when people will not endure sound teaching, but having itching ears, they will accumulate for themselves teachers to suit their own passions and will turn away from listening to the truth and wander off into myths. Now you're probably asking, At this point, when am I going to get to your outline? Okay, that's one of the things you're asking. The other thing you're asking is, why are you railing on psychology? I mean, can integrating psychology and Christianity be bad enough to warrant such a scathing rebuke? Well, let me take a moment and answer that question here by the question again, what is wrong with psychology? Let me give you seven reasons why I believe that psychology is wrong. So A, your first blank in the outline there, psychology is wrong because of who founded it. It's wrong because of who founded it. Sigmund Freud is known as the father of modern psychology and psychotherapy. You need to know a little bit about Sigmund this morning. He was not a Christian, and he was trying to explain human behavior and development from a total secular worldview. He has been described as an atheistic, God-hating Jew with a lot of sexual hang-ups. He hated his father and had a sexual love for his mother. He was a pervert. He called himself a completely godless Jew and hopeless pagan. He considered the Bible to be a storybook full of fairy tales. He hated religion and claimed that it was invented in order to fulfill man's needs. He even admitted that he devised psychotherapy as a substitute for religion. He purposely started practicing psychotherapy on Easter Sunday. Freud is clearly not a friend of Christianity, and he is a self-proclaimed enemy. 2 Timothy 3.5, having the appearance of godliness but denying its power, again, avoid such people. Psalm 1, 1 through 2, we read, blessed is the man who walks not in the counsel of the wicked, nor stands in the way of sinners, nor sits at the seat of scoffers, but his delight is in the law of the Lord. And on his law, he meditates day 
and night. Let me give you a second reason why psychology is wrong. B in your outline, psychology teaches that man is a product of evolution and is basically good by nature. It's hard to get a handle on exactly what psychology teaches because it's constantly changing. From its origin, it has been fragmented into dozens of different competing philosophies of psychology, such as depth psychology, behavioralism, hierarchy of needs, attachment theory, and self-actualization, just to name a few. In fact, it's been estimated that today there are over 250 different philosophies of psychology. However, even though it is involved into many forms, all of these forms are based on the same foundational theories and core beliefs. No matter the shape or the size of many of the houses, they are all built on the same foundation. Freud believed that we are all animals who live by our instincts. And this comes out in his view on sex. B.F. Skinner, another famous psychologist, taught that people were animals that can be conditioned. And he based this assumption on experiments like the now famous Pavlov's dogs. Remember when he would bring uh, a, a dog out and ring a bell or he'd bring the food out and then he would ring the bell, bring the food out, ring the bell, the dog would come out, start salivating. And then he would just ring the bell without bringing the food out and the dog salivating and he became a, a dog psychologist. That moment, he's like, see, that's psychology. No, that's called good training. You can train your dog to do whatever you want your dog to do or not do. You can train an elephant at the circus. Uh, You can train your kids to do certain things and not to do certain things, but that's not dealing with their heart. You're not getting down to the real root matter of their inner man. You're just training external behavioralism. Skinner believed that the environment around us is what made a person evil. He suggested that if you put a child in a box and controlled his environment, as he grew up, he would remain a good person. Again, a failure to recognize the dichotomy of man. Again, most secular psychologists teach monism, which is the idea of you're only made of material. Because they don't really believe in the spirit world. Not a good secular psychologist. There's no, there's no inner man. Whereas a Christian is a dichotomist. We believe in an outer man, flesh and bone, and your inner man, your heart, your soul, your spirit, your conscience, that inner man part of you that lives forever. And Jesus taught us about the inner man and the importance of dealing with the inner man. Even in passages like Matthew 10, 28, do not fear those who kill the body but cannot kill the soul, rather fear him who can destroy both soul and body in hell. Jesus taught in Matthew 11, 29, take my yoke upon you and learn from me for I am gentle and lowly at heart and you will find rest for your souls. And then again in Matthew 16, 26, for what will it profit a man if he gains the whole world and forfeits his soul? Or what can a man give in return for his soul? So Jesus obviously taught, there's an outer man, there's an inner man. All these psychologists that I'm quoting from, they don't believe in an inner man. They believe it's all material, it's all environment, it's all chemicals, it's all genetics. There's no such thing as accountability to a holy God. Carl Rogers and Abraham Maslow set up a system of self-actualization. They believed that a person had to climb through different levels in certain stages until they could finally reach that inner potential within themselves. This process is linking uh, to that of a flower that it grows and matures and blooms and that the human is kind of like that and you got to kind of get down into the intricacies of that to know who you really are. But what does God's word say about the inner man? God's word says, David, Psalm 51, 5, behold, I was brought forth in iniquity and in sin did my mother conceive me. The Bible says in Romans 3, 10, none is righteous, no, not one. Romans 3, 23, all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. Psychology acknowledges none of that. There's no such thing as a sinner, no such thing as depravity, no such thing as that you sinned because they don't believe in sin. The third reason why psychology is wrong is because of, uh, uh, it teaches that, C, man is not responsible. That's what we're talking about. Man is not responsible for his actions or his attitudes. Psy- psychology teaches that people are victims. Their problems are not their fault, but they are the result of what someone else has or hasn't done to them. They believe that they've been either abused or deprived and their needs have not been met. 
Freud believed that the key to understanding and correcting people's problems lies in their past. Therefore, in order to help someone, you must take an archaeological journey into that person's past, looking for people and situations to dig up on which to blame that individual's behavior. You know, it's the whole thought that your mom must have dropped you when you were a baby. That was like the joke when I was growing up. Your mom must have dropped you when you were a baby. Why else would you act like that? Right? It's not your fault. Mama dropped you. Mama, hang on to those babies, right? Uh, so, you know, the idea of finding something in your past, we've already referenced with our opening illustration, but, but this idea can be very dangerous. And psychologists are so convinced that a person's problem is related to something in their past that if they can't find anything, they have the ability to plant memories into the patient's mind that never really happened. And this practice of suggesting certain things that may have happened to them in a patient's past to draw out things that have been suppressed in their memory for many years has been exposed in some court cases, even here in America, as pure manipulation and has proven to be extremely damaging to many people in their families. But what does the Bible teach? Why is that going on in your heart, your mind? Well, the Bible teaches in James 1, 14 and 15, but each person is tempted when he is lured and enticed by his own desire, then desires when it has conceived gives birth to sin. And when sin is fully grown, it brings forth death. And so the Bible doesn't really blame it on anybody but yourself. Now again, there are victims in the world, there are people who have been abused, and for that we're greatly sorrowful for those situations. But we wanna carefully, patiently, lovingly, address those situations by encouraging that individual, no matter what they've been through, to come to Christ, to come to repentance and faith, to forgive others, even as we've been forgiven, so that that person can move forward. And you'll never hear anything like that in the office of a psychologist or a psychiatrist. And so the fourth reason why I'm saying psychology is wrong, D in your outline, is that it teaches that the Bible, prayer, and the Holy Spirit are inadequate and too simplistic to solve deep emotional and spiritual problems. Psychiatrists claim to have a type of higher knowledge and greater insight than the Bible when it comes to dealing with people's psychological problems. They believe that the Bible is incomplete and insufficient and that people need something more like a therapy group or a 12-step program to truly help them. Well, what's wrong with a therapy group or a 12-step program? Well, if they're without Christ and if they're without the teaching of the Bible of confessing your sin, being forgiven, having your sins thrown as far as the east is from the west, being made brand new, and then walking in the footsteps of Jesus, if that's what the program's teaching, then I'm all for it. But those programs don't teach that. They are very nebulous, very ambiguous, and water down the true message of the gospel in order to have changes in their behavior, but doesn't really address the inner man. If it doesn't begin with the God of the Bible who redeems repentant sinners, then it is powerless to do a true work of grace. Several years ago, I remember being at an inerrancy conference at Grace Community Church, where John MacArthur gave six ways the power and the place of the word of God have been weakened by the modern church. Kind of like the modern church is looking for anywhere to go for authority and answers other than the Bible. Here's the six things he mentioned. You won't be able to write these down. They're not in your notes, but just listen. Six, again, he, he mentioned this is six ways the power and the place of the word of God has been weakened in the modern church. Number one, Roman Catholicism has exchanged the authority of the Bible for the authority of religious traditions. Number two, Higher criticism has exchanged the authority of the Bible for the authority of human reason and atheistic naturalism. Number three, modern cults have exchanged the authority of the Bible for the authority of self-appointed leaders such as Joseph Smith, Ellen G. White, and Joseph Rutherford. That's the leader of Mormonism, the Seventh-day Adventists, and um, the Kingdom Hall people. Number four, Pentecostalism has exchanged the authority of the Bible for the authority of personal revelations and ecstatic experiences. Number five, clinical psychology 
has exchanged the authority of the Bible for the authority of Freudian theories and clinical therapies. Number six, the market-driven church has exchanged the authority of the Bible for the authority of felt needs and market schemes. It's so true, right? The Bible is constantly being attacked by different people from different angles for different reasons, and its authority is constantly being reduced and, and shipped away. But we know what the Bible teaches, right? 2 Timothy 4, 3, 16 and 17, all scripture is breathed out by God and is profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction and training in righteousness that the man of God may be complete, equipped for every good work. I mean, that just summarizes it right there, that passage that we all know and love. 2 Peter 1, 3, his divine power has granted to us all things that pertain to life and godliness. He doesn't say that you need the Bible plus secular psychology. You don't need the Bible plus anything else. It's the five solas of the Reformation. It's scripture alone. It's by faith alone, by grace alone, to the glory of God alone, right? That's, that's what it's all about. It's Christ alone. That's why we know that his divine power has given us all that we need for life and for godliness through the knowledge of him who called us to his own glory and excellence. The fifth reason why psychology is wrong, E, psychiatrists, they believe, are experts in dealing with people's problems. So this goes right along with what they're thinking of themselves, that psychiatrists are, of course, the trained professionals with credentials and PhDs, and the psychiatrist has been to medical school, and the psychologist has got a PhD in psychology, and so they believe they are the true trained professionals and therefore the only ones that are truly capable to handle a complex problem. Since they're the trained professionals, they're convinced that pastors and lay people are completely unqualified and unskilled in dealing with complex behavioral problems. And in their opinion, counseling is best left to the experts. And so pastors should refer people to them as the specialist and submit to their expertise. In other words, pastors should stay off their turf and counseling should be done in clinics, not in the church. That's what they teach. In fact, you could summarize it this way, one, two, and three there in your outline. Psychologists try to make a place for their practice by stating, number one, if you're sick, <clears throat> you need to see a doctor. If you're physically sick, obviously go see a doctor, get, get some medication, get that diagnosed and get that treated. If you're sick, you could see a doctor. Number two, if you're confused about God, if we have any questions about faith, then you can see a pastor. You have some question about faith, about religion, then go see a pastor. But number three, if you're depressed, or you can fill in any psychologized term there. If you're depressed or have any psychologized issue, then you need to see a psychologist. It's evident that psychology teaches that they have the corner on truth, that they know what's really going on. They can help you. The doctor helps your outer man. The pastor can help your, your, your spiritual questions. But it's a psychologist that you really need if you're having emotional problems. Because emotions, apparently, are somehow completely divorced from any biblical truth or a, a redeeming-type uh, teaching. And so it's evident that psychology teaches unbiblical ideas. They teach unbiblical methods. Psychology, at its core, remember, is diametrically opposed to all that the Bible teaches. Psychology has been correctly summarized by one author as a war on God's word. Remember, because where psychology and psychiatry are coming from, they're coming from an atheistic, secular point of view. Psalm 14, verse 1, the fool says in his heart, there is no God. They are corrupt and they do abominable deeds. There is none who does good. So if someone does not acknowledge Christ, they don't acknowledge the gospel, they're not doing anybody any good. 1 Timothy 4.1, now the Spirit expressly says that in latter times some will depart from the faith by devoting themselves to deceitful spirits and the teaching of demons. 1 Timothy 4.7, have nothing to do with irreverent, silly myths. Rather, train yourself for godliness. 1 Thessalonians 5.21-22, but test everything. Hold fast to what is good. 
abstain from every form of evil. Let's move on to our sixth reason why psychology is wrong. F in your outline, psychology is wrong because of how it works. Because of how it works, since its inception, psychology has been promoted and accepted as a fully-fledged science. However, none of its theories and hypotheses can be tested and verified through traditional means of true objective science because they cannot be proved by measurable data or empirical evidence. It is not a true science. Psychology is based upon a medical model. In other words, psychology equates mental illness with physical illness. When a person suffers from a physical illness, doctors diagnose the particular illness based on symptoms that can be verified through blood tests, tissue samples, or other objective diagnostic means. And based on their tests, they can know for a fact that you have strep throat, for instance, right? It's caused by a bacteria, and that bacteria is called group A streptococcus, and that bacteria can be identified through taking a culture and then growing it out under a a petri dish and then examining that bacteria uh, through a microscope. You could diagnose strep throat. That's what a rapid strep test does. That's what happens if they send it really to the pathologist who can actually read it physically under the lab and say, you know what, this person has group A streptococcus. We need to give them amoxicillin, 500 milligrams, three times a day for 10 days. We can cure strep throat. That's good science. We like that. That's medicine. The problem is psychiatry and psychology try to practice in the same way. So when they say a person struggles from a mental illness, psychologists or psychiatrists attempt to diagnose the particular illness the same way a medical doctor does based upon their symptoms. However, these symptoms cannot be verified through medical means. A symptom is more describing the problem, how you feel, how it impacts you, whereas a diagnosis has to be made on empirical data. You could have symptoms of a sore throat, but you don't have strep throat unless you prove it in the lab, right? You could just have a a viral strep throat. You could have a common cold. You could have other types of of, of sore throats. It's not guaranteed until you do the science. So the problem is with psychology or psychiatry, they have a hypothesis based on the symptoms. I feel depressed. I'm having trouble focusing. I, I have all these issues, but none of that can be verified by any empirical data, any hardcore science. There's no blood test, x-rays, CAT scans, MRIs, PET scans, or even cultures of cerebrospinal fluid that can measure a hypothesized chemical imbalance in the brain to determine why a person is acting in a strange or disorderly way. Therefore, their diagnosis is simply speculation and theory because there's no way to prove it. Yet psychologists say that a person's disorder is caused by an illness like depression or attention deficit hyperactivity disorder. They would say a person is sick because something made them sick. It's not his fault. He can't help himself. Therefore, a person's behavior can be excused. By the way, that would be the same truth of homosexuality, transgender issues, any issue you have, it's not your fault, it's who you are, and there's no, uh, there's no reason that you should ever change who you are, but just embrace it and celebrate it. But let me, let me explain this a little further with the idea of how you diagnose depression, since that's a common psychologized term in our culture. If somebody has depression, it can be diagnosed not medically, not by blood work, not by examining neurotransmitters because serotonin, the most common neurotransmitter involved with the idea of depression, is not measurable. So in order to diagnose it, it's not diagnosed by hard science. It's a soft science. In order to diagnose depression, you have to qualify by answering yes to five out of these nine questions that are given in the Diagnostics and Statistics Manual for Psychiatric Disorders. The big book, references is uh, it's called the DSM Diagnostic Statistics Manual Psychiatric Disorders there's the fifth version that's out right now came out in 2013 they put a new one out about every decade and they say if you answer yes to five of these nine questions you could be diagnosed with depression you anybody want to get diagnosed this morning here we go number one if you have a depressed mood most of the day almost every day indicated by your own subjective report or by the report of others, this mood might be characterized by sadness, emptiness, or hopelessness. 
So again, that's number one. If you've had five of these for at least two weeks in an ongoing way, you could be diagnosed. That was number one. Number two, do you have a markedly diminished interest or pleasure in all or almost uh, in almost all activities most of the day, nearly every day? Number three, significant weight loss when not dieting or weight gain. Number four, inability to sleep or oversleeping nearly every day. Some of my kids have that right now. Number five, psychomotor agitation or retardation nearly every day. Number six, fatigue or loss of energy nearly every day. Number seven, feelings of worthlessness or excessive or inappropriate guilt, which may be delusional nearly every day. Number eight, diminished ability to think or concentrate or indecisiveness nearly every day. Number nine, recurrent thoughts of death, not just the fear of dying, but recurrent suicidal ideation without a specific plan or a suicide attempt or specific plan for committing suicide. Now, again, we laugh at a couple of those because anybody could be fatigued or have too much sleep or gain a little weight. So the idea is if those things are happening significantly for a two-week period or more, and you're not able to really figure out why that's happening and it just keeps happening, then the theory is, is that you must have a lack of the neurotransmitter serotonin in the synapse of the brain in between the neurons in your brain that's making you feel what you're feeling. That's the theory. The problem is, as I already mentioned, you can't prove it. It's fine to have a theory, but if you don't have a fact to back it up to say, hey, and we can measure serotonin, and your level is supposed to be between 100 and 150, and yours is only 39. So therefore, you're depressed. If you could do that, then we would say, okay, there's something to what they're saying, but you can't do that. Even if you could do that, because you can do that with hormones, all right, you can measure hormones and understand for ladies in particular when their hormones change at that time of the month or during menopause, there can be significant physical challenge to what you're dealing with. However, you still, with God's help, can respond in those challenging moments in a godly way. You can respond by faith. You can respond by glorifying God in a true hormonal imbalance. It's not Jesus plus dark chocolate. It's just Jesus. That's all you need. All right, dark chocolate's a liberty. If you want to do it, that's fine. Just don't have too much cocoa in there, right? 95%'s too much. Got to be 70% or below. Is that right, babe? She's like, that's right. I got, I got Lisa some dark chocolate one time, and it was too much cocoa in there. So got to be careful about that one. But we're just talking about... <clears throat> The idea, the idea here is if it's not measurable, it's just a theory. It's just a theory. And I'm saying even if they come out one day to prove serotonin can be measured, it still doesn't change my position on scripture because hormones can be measured and we still are responsible to respond in a godly way to no matter what's going on with your physical health. Uh, Dr. William Playfair is a medical doctor who's not a Christian who wrote a book about this entitled The Useful Lie. In it, he exposes how psychology uses the medical model to entrap problems and diseases and label them, harp on them until people are convinced that they are afflicted by these diseases and then sell them a supposed cure. Do you, know, you want to know why antidepressant medications is a billion-dollar business? Because a doctor wants to have something to give to a patient who made an appointment with that doctor and said, I'd like to come in and see you. I feel depressed. And so he can ask a few questions like what we just went through, those nine questions. And if you answer yes to five of them, he can diagnose you with depression, bill that to the insurance company, prescribe a medication to you and say, I'll see you in a month or in a week or in a month and have a follow-up. And that's a good practice for him. And I'm not saying that to do that is a sin. If you are here this morning and you're struggling with any psychologized term or diagnosis and you've been on medication, that's fine. I have no problem with anybody taking any medication. That's a Christian liberty. I'm just simply saying this morning that, first of all, we don't know that that's really helping you. It could be a placebo effect of the medication where you think you're getting better because you're taking a medication, but the FDA, the Food and Drug Administration, has not been able to adequately prove through double-blind studies of the medications that come out that you have a statistically better chance of getting better 
if you're on the medication than if you're not being on the medication. Some studies show that if you take the medication, 70% of people get better. And you might think, well, that's pretty good, 70%, not too bad. But they also gave the placebo, which is a fake drug that doesn't have any medicinal value, and 60% of the people got better. So if 70% people get better on the real drug, 60% get better on the placebo, how much faith do you really have in that medication? Not a whole lot, right? Whereas with if you take the amoxicillin for a strep throat, you're going to get cured 100% of the time unless you have a resistant bacteria or if you have an allergy to it, which, which can be tested. But otherwise, it's going to be a kill and you're going to win that sickness. So the idea here is we got to be careful about what's going on. We have to understand that the world's psychology is an effort to explain behavior outside of Christ, outside of the Bible, outside of any culpability, and they want to blame it on anything but you. The seventh reason why psychology is wrong is, gee, psychology is wrong because it has not worked. It has not worked as part of what we're talking about here. It doesn't really work. They claim that it works, that it's a cure, that you'll be all better if you do their thing, their way. But surveys show that some people who go to the psychiatrist get better, but so do people who don't go to the psychiatrist. One survey in Time Magazine reported that of those meeting with psychiatrists, one-third of the patients were cured, one-third of the patients were helped somewhat, and one-third of the patients were not helped at all. However, the proverbial fly in the ointment is that some of the people on the waiting list for psychotherapy improved without ever being treated by the psychiatrist. Now, if you're getting better and you need to see the doctor, then obviously you don't need the doctor. It's also interesting to note that the suicide rate has been reported to be significantly higher among psychologists and psychiatrists more than any other part of the medical profession. It's kind of interesting, right? For these people who are supposed to have all the answers to life's problems, you would think that there's barely any psych, uh, uh, suicide, but practitioners, psychologists and psychiatrists have a higher rate than any other discipline of medicine. So it's clear that psychology is wrong in many ways. It is a religion, a religion invented by godless men based on evolutionary presuppositions, maintained by unbiblical practices, and debunked by its own representatives. And so in light of these facts, it's mind-boggling to see so many Christians trying to integrate Christianity and psychology. Integrationalists are attempting to do something that scripture condemns. And some things from science and psychology may prove to be helpful at times just by sheer observation, but they aren't really dealing with the heart, which we've talked about. So you might observe some psychological study and say, I see some associations that I can relate to. They do a good job describing the kind of things I'm feeling and thinking, but that doesn't diagnose the problem. And it certainly doesn't offer the cure coming through scripture if what they're offering you is medication and psychotherapy or cognitive behavioral therapy, which is a way of changing your habits without Jesus, changing your habits without Christ, without biblical sanctification. So then that means you're trading one type of behavior for another type of behavior, but you haven't really been changed in your inner man by the gospel. So now that we've seen that psychology is diametrically opposed to the Bible, let's look at two other things. These will be much quicker for the sake of time. Number two, psychology cannot be integrated with Christianity. Let me give you four reasons why psychology cannot be integrated. Number one, integration attempts to mix Christ with Belial. Turn with me in this passage, if you will, to 2 Corinthians chapter 6, verses 14 through 18. They attempt to mix Christ with Belial. Belial is another name for Satan. And this is where we read this common passage that you're pretty familiar with. 2 Corinthians 6, 14, do not be unequally yoked with unbelievers for what partnership has righteousness with lawlessness or what fellowship has light with darkness. You know what he's asking? He's like, what in the world do truth and error have in common? What does light have to do with darkness? Answer, nothing. Fifth, verse 15, <coughs> what accord means what agreement or what unity, what accord has Christ with Belial or Satan? The answer would be nothing. What portion does a believer share with an unbeliever? Newsflash, believers, all believers go to heaven, all unbelievers go to hell. So what inheritance, what portion do they have that's similar? Nothing. 
One goes to heaven, one goes to hell. Verse 16, what agreement has the temple of God with idols? For we are the temple of the living God. As God said, I will make my dwelling among them and walk among them and I will be their God and they shall be my people. Therefore, go out from their midst and be separate from them, says the Lord, and touch no unclean thing. Then I will welcome you and I will be a father to you and you shall be my sons and my daughters, says the Lord Almighty. I'm applying this passage with secular philosophy coming out of the world of psychology and psychiatry saying that all attempts to integrate psychology and Christianity are rooted in the ideas that there is something inherently lacking in Christianity and somehow psychology provides what is lacking. In other words, these two should be integrated out of necessity because Christianity needs the truths that psychology has to offer. That's what they're saying. But on the contrary, if a truth is indeed necessary, then it would be in the Bible. There's a truth about your inner man, your heart, what you're thinking, how you're acting, then it would be in the Bible. So being a Christian psychologist is like being a Christian evolutionist or what that discipline calls as theistic evolution. So theistic evolution is saying, hey, the Big Bang happened because that's what science says, but I'm still a Christian, so I'm going to somehow marry the two and say, well, God created the world through the Big Bang, and God somehow created humanity by the evolution of a monkey to a human being. I'm still a Christian, but I believe that's how he did it because somehow science and the Bible are both true, and the answer to those questions is, no, the Bible's true, period. The Bible tells us how we got here, and you didn't, it didn't come from a Big Bang, and you didn't evolve from a monkey. And so in the same way, you can't mix Christianity and evolution. I'm saying you can't mix Christianity and secular psychology. You can't take God's wisdom and man's wisdom and say somehow they fit together and they need each other to somehow help for the greater good. You can't do that. You have to rip man's wisdom out, discard it, throw it away, and God's wisdom is sufficient for all that we need for life and godliness. Because the problem is this, your next blank says, integration denies the Bible's claim of sufficiency. The Bible claims to be sufficient. It says you've got everything that you need for life and godliness. Psychology simply says, uh-uh-uh, you need the Bible plus. You need the Bible plus. You need the Bible plus. What does that sound like? It sounds like a false religion. If anybody says you need the Bible plus, something else in order to change your inner man and the way you think and the way you act as far as it orients itself towards God, then that's false teaching. The third reason why psychology is, can't be integrated with Christianity is C, integration denies Christ's adequacy as the wonderful counselor. I've already established that fact. Jesus is the wonderful counselor. You don't need counsel outside of Jesus, the living word. And so we could go more into that. Jesus is the bread of life, the light of the world, the door of the sheep, the good shepherd, the resurrection and the life, the way, the truth and the life and the true vine. You don't need anybody but Jesus to save your soul and to help you live for him. D, integration assumes that for 2000 years, God left his people of his church without the necessary resources to solve people's problems and to live godly lives. You've ever thought about that? If psychology really started in the mid-1800s, but didn't really get roaring until the 1900s, then how in the world did Christians, Christ followers, survive depression, ADHD, bipolar, you fill in the list, before psychology finally diagnosed it and treated it? How in the world did they make it? And the answer is, well, true Christians, first of all, You've got to come to Christ if you're in the midst of a crisis like that, some of the diagnoses that we've been referencing. You've got to make sure you're born again. The first step is I need to be saved. The second thing is as a born again Christ follower, I need to walk in obedience to God's word. And of course, it's hard. It's difficult. It takes patience and discipleship and prayer and confession of sin and walking after the steps of Jesus. It takes a, it takes a lifetime. It's an ongoing battle. We get that, but certainly we don't need to close the cover of our Bible and now pick up modern psychology and say, ah, oh, now I have answers for all my problems. Now I know how to deal with my children. You know, the Bible has everything that you need for life. You either believe it's sufficient or you don't. If you believe it's sufficient, then use it supremely, use it as it's meant to be used sufficiently and understand that that's where the real change comes from. And then thirdly, certainly, 
you would have to agree with this one. Number three, psychology falls short of pointing people to Jesus. It does. It doesn't point to the fact that Jesus is our savior. Remember, I've told you everything about B.F. Skinner and um, Sigmund Freud and all the other psychiatrists that were mentioned there. None of them believe that Jesus is a savior. But John the Baptist said, behold, when he saw Jesus coming to him in the river Jordan, behold the Lamb of God, who does what? Who takes away the sin of the world. And people who are struggling, which all of us are, with various psychological type symptoms are struggling because we are not thinking correct thoughts about God and about the gospel and about our savior. And in that moment, we're beginning to doubt him and we're beginning to go in a different direction. And we just gotta be reminded, Jesus is my savior. It starts right there. He's my savior, he's the way, he's the truth, and he's the life. And I'm telling you this morning, psychology falls short because it doesn't point anyone to Jesus. Jesus is our savior. B, Jesus is our teacher. Not only did Jesus die so that we could be born again, he teaches us how to live. He, remember, is the wonderful counselor. No one ever spoke like this man. John 7, 46, seeing the crowds, the Sermon on the Mount, Matthew 5, 1, he went up on the mountain and when they had sat down, his disciples came to him and he opened his mouth and he taught them. You want a good counseling manual? Use the Sermon on the Mount. When somebody comes to you for counseling and you have no idea what to do, just say, you know what, let's go to Matthew chapter 5, 6, and 7 and let's read through it and I guarantee you, you'll find something in Jesus' Sermon on the Mount that will be incredibly helpful for anybody's psychological problems. Jesus taught us. He's the wonderful counselor. Jesus gave us the Sermon on the Mount, the Olivet Discourse, and the Great Commission. Jesus gave us clear teaching about God's attributes, about the Holy Spirit's power, and about the importance of baptism. Jesus taught us about the greatest commandment, the golden rule, and he taught us about blessing and the blessing of freedom from sin, forgiveness from God, and faith without measure. Why would you go anywhere else? Those are the things you need to think through and learn and apply in your heart and life if you're struggling with psychological problems. And then number three, Jesus is our savior. He's our teacher. Jesus is our example. He is our example. Whoever says he abides in him ought to walk in the same way which Jesus walks. Somebody's struggling. You're struggling. I'm struggling. Are you walking like Christ? Are you looking to him for your example? 1 Peter 2.21 you say, but Adam, you don't understand. I'm going through immense suffering. Well, so did Christ. First Peter 2.21, for this you've been called because Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example so that you might follow in his steps. He committed no sin. Neither was deceit found in his mouth. When he was reviled, he did not revile in return. When he suffered, he did not threaten, but continued entrusting himself to him who judges justly. The bottom line is this, Christian psychology's attempt to harmonize two contradicting systems of belief cannot happen without compromising or abandoning altogether the sufficiency of scripture. There are lots of Christian psychologists who believe the Bible's not enough. In fact, one well-known Christian psychologist stated that there are some groups of Christians who believe the Bible's all you need. Amen. That is what we believe. The Bible is all that you need. I'm convinced that far more is at stake than the average Christian realizes. If evangelicals do not rediscover biblical counseling and reinstate God's word to its rightful place as the supreme discerner and mender of thoughts and intents of the heart, we will lose our testimony to the world. And we will replace Christ as the head of the church with human wisdom and philosophy. God and his people do not need a psychiatrist. Jesus alone is the good shepherd and the great physician. Come to him. He has all that you need. As we close this morning there in the take-home section, build your foundation on the rock who is Christ and not of the sand of this world. Number two, don't be intimidated by the world's system. 
This is where a lot of Christians fall into this category. Oh, I'm intimidated. Oh, they've been diagnosed with this. They're on medication. They're seeing a psychiatrist. Oh, yeah? Well, guess what you have? You have the Holy Bible. You have the word of God to say, hey, let's talk about what you're going through. Let's look at the Sermon on the Mount and let's see if God has something to offer that would help transform your way of thinking and therefore transform your behavior. Last, ask God to help you be a better counselor who seeks to point others to Jesus. Let's pray together. Father, thank you for this morning. Thank you for the opportunity to dive into these important concepts and truths throughout the scripture, throughout what we face in modern day psychology and the world of counseling. God, we know that there are many people who would be on a spectrum of various things of what was said this morning. I pray that you would help each of us here today just take what was said, compare it to your word, have healthy conversations, sharpen one another, encourage one another that at the end of the day that we want to find our salvation in Christ. If we want to find our sanctification in Christ. If we want to follow the scripture. And I pray that you would help us to do that humbly, that you would help us do that dependently, and that you would help us to find our joy and our satisfaction. God, help us to never be tempted to think that your word's not enough. Help us to never look outside of scripture for true answers to the kind of trials and suffering and difficulties that we face. I pray for those here this morning who may be struggling with some type of quote-unquote mental illness. Help us to look at what we're struggling with and compare it to scripture. Help us to find hope and help in the gospel. Help us to be willing to confess sin where we can identify clear sin in our thinking and our behavior. Help us to know that we have a savior. We have a teacher. We have an example in the Lord Jesus Christ. May we look to him this day, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.